Can you hear me? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for all these nice words. Uh, I don't know how much I deserve from that, but still. <laughs> uh, I would like to thank you all for coming, for taking the time to, to come to today's lecture. Uh, some of you I know from the old days while I was still a student here in Bournemouth, someone I've met as colleagues. Uh, there is one person that I know since the age of 12, a co-author of mine, he sits over there. So there is a range and there are people that I don't know and my students. So thank you very much that you find the time to come. Um, let me just say a couple of things. It's, it's quite exciting that actually uh, I had the opportunity to to do my inaugural lecture in Bournemouth University because this is where I started my academic career and this is where I did my PhD with Philip Hardwick and Steve Letts as my supervisors. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they couldn't be here today uh, and I owe them almost everything. Uh, so I would like to thank them, just a few, you know, thanks along the way. Um, I have to say that it was not an easy journey being an academic is about 95% getting rejections, 5% getting acceptances. It's almost the same rate as with my girlfriends. So sort of the same rate. Uh, it's a bit better. Um, so the, uh, so I have to say that what actually made that reality and for me actually to be able to, 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 to actually deliver some of these outputs is the fact that uh, I came into a department uh, led primarily by uh, Jens Holzer and I owe him uh, a lot because he created a department that it actually embraces research as a research-led department and it actually tries the hardest to make it a reality to make sure that we can push it to the boundaries that we can actually develop our research, our understanding and deliver obviously the best we can to our students. Uh, so I was not trained as an energy economist, so most probably I know nothing about energy economics or maybe I know something, I will try to convince you of that. Um, I was trained as a finance person, uh, my PhD was on derivatives, when I completed my PhD I realized that not my cup of tea. So what happened since then, I actually developed uh, an interest in the energy market with particular focus in, the, uh, in oil. And this is where my research has been over the last 10 to 12 years. So what I'm going to present you today, it's partly draws from my research some conclusions where we have reached and some evidence, uh, and partly draws from where my research may head to or things that I find quite interesting, yeah? Uh, overall, what I'm I will try to do, I'm going to build a story, a tale, that has three plus one parts. The plus one part is the Brexit. And unfortunately, I, I know virtually nothing about Brexit, which puts me of no difference between the Tories, Theresa May and myself. But, but still that's good because I cannot be blamed that I don't know anything. So it will be a story of three plus one. The the first three parts are going to be about the experience that we get over the last 10 to 15 years of oil price volatility, why that is interesting, what can explain that behavior, whereas the fourth part, it's focused more in the UK. Yeah, are you ready for the journey then? First of all, do you have a controller or something? No, I will come over that side. 
first of all, we need to like I need to convince you that understanding oil prices, understanding oil price volatility is important. Uh, so I will try to do that to motivate that in a couple of slides. As we know, oil prices is actually uh, has a large number of stakeholders the oil co the, as a commodity as well as a market. So obviously we have OPEC and they are interested in the price of oil because they produce it and they sell it. So you would like to sell it at a fair price if we can say that. We have the oil companies, obviously they're interested. We have authorities, inflation, oil price creates either uh, imported inflation if you are an oil importer if you export oil, it could be just inflation because of higher consumption, because you are more wealthy. But of course, primarily, and I think the majority of us, unless uh, you have your own kingdom in the Middle East, uh, we are here. We are interested about the oil, most probably because it will influence our fuel prices. So the, the, the crude oil price and volatility, it matters a lot. It matters a lot to too many people. But why am I saying about crude oil volatility. First of all, is it volatile and why should we care? Obviously volatility is uncertainty and if we operate in an uncertainty environment, possibly you cannot make plans. So most probably this is why we are interested. If we see the anecdotal evidence that are delivered by the financial press, for example, what we can read is that oil prices have become volatile. At least these are the bold titles, financial press, Forbes, so on and so forth. Even the International Econo Energy Association, they talk about the oil price volatility. Interestingly enough, and of course these are not just picked uh, accidentally, we have here something in the financial press that talks about oil price volatility and stocks. We have here a link between oil price volatility and OPEC meetings. We have about the US departure from the Iran Accord of the nuclear power. What we can see there is that there are two worlds that are getting connected through the oil prices. We have the, the, the economic and the political aspect. We also have the markets, the financial markets. So markets tend to be volatile. And this is the anecdotal evidence. But let me provide some evidence. Maybe it's not volatile. If we see the next picture, what you observe, and I have highlighted in blue, uh, don't take it, don't take my word that is exactly in that year, that blue shade, shaded area could be a bit slightly before that. We do observe a huge regime change. The red line is the crude oil prices. The blue line represents the volatility in the market. What do you observe after 2003, 2004, there's a significant regime change not only to the average value of oil prices over the recent period of time, but also on abrupt changes. We can see huge rises and very sudden collapses, which increase, of course, the volatility. So in a sense, what I'm, 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 I'm trying to do here, I'm saying that, okay, we, we do know the anecdotal evidence that the market is becoming more volatile, but we also have very naive evidence, let's call it like that, but we do see, we do see that uh, regime change. So what I'm going to talk about over the next sort of half an hour is what can explain that or what cannot explain that regime change. Obviously, the, the departure point has to be the fundamentals. We hear that for almost every single asset. Is it 
directed by the fundamentals or not? Is it influenced by the fundamentals or not? And what are the fundamentals in this case? The oil market fundamentals are very basic and most probably the same like every other asset, demand and supply, right? So we need to see whether actions from the supply side, actions from the demand side, compared to what these actions were in the previous years, can actually explain that change. If that's the case, most probably stop here. Yeah, and that will be 10 minute talk. What do you have here? So let me say that throughout the presentation, it's only figures. It has some words somewhere, but the majority of that is just figures. And based on these figures, I'll try to tell a story. If it's convincing, it is. If not, you can ask me the questions later. So supply. The global supply and oil prices should expect to have a negative relationship. The more abundance of oil that we have in the market, the cheaper the price should be. Very plain and simple, Economics 101. However, what we see is, especially if you take a look at what happened in the global financial crisis, for example, or at the latest oil slump, we actually see a very clear positive correlation. So the higher the oil availability, the higher the prices. And when the oil availability collapses, the lower the prices. That's completely uh, opposite to what we would expect to happen. So again, of course, very like just for a figure, but of course that draws from my own research to say that actually we, we find significant evidence that the supply side does not really impact the behavior of oil price volatility and oil prices. It cannot create that link that used to be in the 70s, in the 80s. And if we look at the same diagram, but let's remove the oil prices, let's put the oil price volatility, we don't see any difference. So what we observe here, the behavior of the oil producers is not really changing over the years. We don't observe any notable behavioral change on how they increase or decrease the supply of oil. But still, we have that regime change in volatility and oil prices. So possibly, I can now say that the supply side is not really something that we can actually uh, trust. What about aggregate demand? What I have there are the oil prices in blue, whereas red is global GDP, the return, the, the growth rates of the global GDP. Why do I have that here? What is the relationship, first of all, that we would expect to have? Oil is the main energy, uh, energy source that we use for production. Still now, it's not the renewables, it's not anything else, it's just oil, the majority of that. And that means when the economy is booming, we produce more. But if we produce more, we export more, we import more. What does it mean? We need more transportation. More freights go back and forth between ports, right? So oil prices tend to go up. Do we see that positive relationship? If we zoom in, we would see that there are periods that this positive relationship can be observed. Let's move closer to what happened just before the global financial crisis onwards. And I will just pinpoint a couple of things. This is a crucial point, 2007. What do you observe? That's the start of the economic crisis around the world, correct? World GDP would started to decline. 
What did you observe with oil, pr oil prices? They peaked. When oil prices did collapse, they collapsed only once the global financial crisis became full-fledged. That was in October, September, October 2008. And this is when you see the huge collapse. Yes, obviously, when the world economy suffers a huge drop, you will see that positive correlation. But what happens before that? Yeah? And yet again, look where is the global economy before. That's true. And let's see where's the global economy after the global financial crisis. It's fairly flat, but still oil prices have slumped in 2014. June 2014 to June 2016, they dropped by more than 70%. So possibly I have convinced you now that the fundamentals are not there, or at least they cannot tell us the whole story. So my take on that is that we have two other important aspects that they do matter. The first one, and this is a huge debate in the energy economics and energy finance uh, literature, is the financialization of the oil market. If you ask people like, I'm not going to give names since I'm getting recorded, uh, if you uh, ask half of the energy finance experts, they will say that the financial market is not financialized, whereas if you ask the other half, they will say it's financialized. Obviously, you understand why they say that, because if your model tells you that it's not financialized, you like to promote that model, so obviously the market is not financialized. So I'm not going to, I'm going to skip any modeling, I'm going to show some evidence. What you observe there is the course of the, the interest that people are showing to the oil futures, to the crude oil futures worldwide. And the open interest, in a sense, is how many contracts in the derivative market of the oil are still live, are still traded, right? If we see, you can see that there is that significant upward trend and it has picked up again around 2004 to 2005. And I could consider that as my evidence that yes, the financial, the, the, the oil market has become financialized because so many people are involved in the derivative market. But of course, one can come to say to me, yeah, but hang on a minute, an airliner who needs oil, uh, a shipping company that needs oil, they could engage in the futures market because they want to do hedging. They want to secure the price of the oil that they will use six months from now. So obviously they have an interest. And why that growing interest? Because oil prices are significantly more unstable now compared to what it was before 2004. And I could take that argument. I would say, yes, you are absolutely correct. So let me convince you a bit more. Let's focus on non-oil users. I, and what I mean by non-oil users, I mean about investors that they don't care, they are not interested on the physical commodity, on the use of the physical commodity. For example, a financier, a money, man a money manager. So what we see here, the light blue is the uh, futures markets in the West Texas Intermediate, WTI. The blue, the dark blue is the Brent futures contracts. What we observe, we observe a tendency of the interest that these money managers are actually having in the oil market to increase. So that could only mean one thing. Whether we like it or not can only mean one thing. If money managers are interested in investing their money into the futures market, 
They don't do that because they have this fetish to actually keep oil barrels in their, you know, next to their wines or something. They don't do that, trust me. I don't know many, but I haven't seen that at least, the evidence. Most probably they know that because they speculate the price of oil. And let me try to provide additional evidence. Let's see the open interest of the money man market investors in the oil futures market. What do you observe? And these are the net long position on purpose. Why is that? Because when you take a long position in the future market, you speculate that the market will go up. So obviously what we would expect, a positive correlation between the money market in open interest in net long positions with the oil prices. And what you observe there, obviously is not one to one, but most probably we would see that there is a pretty close relationship. Yeah, unless I see something, uh, I cannot see something that you can. But we can see the oil slump, you can see that trend, that significant neg negative trend, you can see what happens in that part of the story. So we do get the sense that there is a link there. There is a pretty good link. Also, where do these money managers invest at? Stocks, most of them, and foreign exchange. I have skipped some slides, of course, otherwise it would be too long. We observe two things. There's a very high correlation between foreign exchange and oil prices as well as stocks and oil prices. Why? Because now these markets transmit information to off one to the other. And if we look at the volatility in particular, this is the, the red line is the volatility of the US stock market. The blue line is the volatility of the WTI. What do you observe? especially until 2014, it's actually the same, isn't it? That, obviously, correlation does not mean causation. That was the first thing I've learned from Philip Hardwick. Um, as a Greek, I was trying to, you know, to make my way to, to find suspicious conclusions about everything. But it cannot be a con 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 um, coincidental. Uh, obviously, we have something else also going on here. So my take on that, and, and that is based also on my evidence, is that the, the, there is a huge financialization in the oil market that certainly drives oil prices, at least in the short run. And that can explain the huge uh, change in the, in the patterns of volatility. Still, there's something missing. And most probably, it's something missing that you have forgotten quite a few years now. And this is about the geopolitical risk. The, there is no other commodity in the world that it's so interlinked with political and economic developments around the world. Let's not forget that so many wars have taken place because of oil, right? Uh, it was something, even though the Middle East, we do observe a certain unrest, it was something that we had forgotten. But if we see, there's a very interesting index that is developed by authors. I don't know if you can read that. It's Caldara and Iacovielo. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they developed this index that it's called the Geopolitical Risk Index. And it tries to capture that tension in geopolitical landscape. As you can see, there's a huge surge after 2007 there's a huge surge in the geopolitical risk index, whereas the level of 
actual geopolitical actions. So threat is a risk that something will happen. An action is an actual like like a war or a terrorist attack. Yeah, and major ones, of course. We talk about major ones. So what we observe is that the geopolitical risk increases significantly, and the actions don't remain that high compared to what they were in the previous years. So it's something that there is a tendency that things are getting shaky, but still we haven't seen where that is going to go. However, if there is uncertainty, like assuming that this is valid, and this is what I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to, to show today, hopefully, it should explain why the oil market becomes more volatile. Oil market doesn't like geopolitical risk. Yeah. What explains that? What did we see to happen in the world after 2004? Again, it coincides with the surge in the oil prices. There are two countries that gain momentum on, let's say, assuming that you have a, a game of world domination. I don't know, like a, like a villain in the uh, James Bond movie. But we have two countries that they gain momentum on uh, gaining dominance. And which are these two countries? China and Russia. But if they try to gain momentum, who are they challenging? The US. And obviously, history has shown that the US doesn't like to get challenged. They get angry. They get nasty. And my take on this geopolitical risk and the uncertainty in the oil market arises from three interlinked things. First, US energy security, maintenance of the economic power that the US has, i.e. getting protected from the competitors, and the maintenance of the petrodollar system. If you are not familiar what the petrodollar system is, it was a very simple system that came up in the 1970s with the help of Kissinger at the time, I think it was Nixon, the president, I can't remember now. And they had a very simple idea. The Saudis would only denominate oil in US dollars. So that would make the dollar very strong currency and obviously in huge amounts of circulation. Then the dollars that the Saudis would actually uh, receive from their oil proceeds, they would be invested in debt instruments in the US in other words, the US bond market. So to maintain that stronghold, and what the Saudis would get in exchange? Any ideas? Weapons to be able to protect themselves in the wider region. And that deal had its ups and downs, and these ups and downs were related to certain volatile periods in the oil market, but we had forgotten about that for a significant amount of time, until recently. Uh, and this is what I'll try to show. Starting from the energy, security. The US in 2004, 2005 completely changed their energy policy. They, they became, they tried to become completely dependent on their own oil. They didn't, in a sense, prefer the imports of oil. They wanted to become self-sustained. What, what this diagram depicts is that is the US oil production, which actually is about 10 to 11 million barrels per day at the moment. Still, it's a bit, a bit short on, from the actual demand 
that the US uh, has in, in, in energy and particularly in oil, but still it covers pretty much uh, their needs. And, and we could say that, okay, we can stop importing foreign oil if we are in the US. They have achieved independence. Who cares about the Middle East? Hooray. We've solved the problem. We don't care. We actually can live by ourselves. But what we observed in the previous slide, and it's a misleading title there, is not energy security. It's energy independence. I'm independent from importing oil. Energy security, in particular for the US, it has a whole different meaning. Energy security is tightly linked with their imperialist behavior and the maintenance of the petrodollar system. You cannot divide one from the other. And the energy security meaning in the US is about the level of the oil price and at which currency is going to be denominated. So what you observe there is independence. And yes, the US have achieved pretty much a solid independency from oil imports. They still import, but not as much as they used to. Are they energy secured? What we observe is that it seems not. And what makes them to be unsafe, unease, not to have a very good night's sleep, apart from the fact that they voted for Trump, is that they need to be sure that the oil will be denominated in dollars. If that's not the case, they cannot be the main economic power. But the, the, the oil is still denominated in dollars, right? So why that unrest? What explains yet all that behavior? What explains that behavior? I'll show in a bit all these changes in the geopolitical landscape over the last few years. And let's see a very interesting figure, at least to me. The blue line shows the oil production of non-OPEC countries, predominantly produced by the US and their partners, Canada, so on and so forth, Norway, the red line is OPEC plus that includes Russia and China. What do you observe? That after 2004, the balance has moved towards OPEC plus and China, meaning that these countries produce more oil than the rest of the world. Who is the price setter? Obviously those who produce most of the oil, correct? In the Pre-2004, that was predominantly, again, in the US and their partners. In the post-2004, we see a shift. Yet again, someone can say, yeah, but here, in the red one line, we have Saudi Arabia. Correct? So again, there shouldn't be any geopolitical uncertainty because the US and the Saudi Arabia, they go hand in hand. Let's see where the story is hidden. It started in 2003 with Iraq. I'm not going to show all that. But from 2007, we observe one thing. And this is 2007, sorry for going back and forth, is when they started being sort of at the similar rate. And then we can see the divergence. And that's important because other people have also changed their energy policy. So what do you observe? Starting from Iran, moving to Russia, moving to Venezuela, they have declared not only their interest, but they did that in action that they will not sell oil in dollars. 
they would sell the oil in Chinese yuan. Yes? You can see two countries here. Actually, you can see three countries here. Iran, Russia, Venezuela. We will come to that in a bit. No coincidence that all that have some links with the US. China, in 2018, in March 2018, if I recall well, actually created the first one denominated oil futures contract. We saw earlier on who trade futures, correct? So if these people shift from Euro, US dollar denominated futures to the one denominated futures, it means that the yuan will gain more power. And you have established that currency is the key to make the economic, uh, to be the economic power. Uh, and of course, of that we don't we don't stop there. But India in 2018, recently, they said we are willing to buy the Iranian oil by paying in Indian rupees. Yes, correct. Again, where is the dollar? So what we see, it's not that the shift in the production it shifts against the U.S., but still we don't care. We see a huge trend that those people that they are in the red line, and they seem to be able to control the game, they want to get away from the dollar. I'm not talking about that this is going to be tomorrow, maybe Saturday, but not tomorrow, yeah? But there is a tendency. What else do you observe? Still, we couldn't care less about that because we have the Saudis. Let's see what happened. Saudi Arabia, at the moment, is the first oil exporter to China. It used to be Russia. It comes second. So at the moment, the Saudi Arabia is actually leaning towards China significantly, as well as towards Russia. What that can tell us? How do you know that the Saudi Arabia will not change their mind? They will cancel the petrodollar agreement if they have the backup from China and Russia. It's not a coincidence. In 2008, October time, Khashoggi was murdered, correct? In November 2018, a month later, what happened? A G20 meeting. There was a very interesting moment in the G20 meeting. There was a high five between bin Salman, the prince of Saudi Arabia, and Putin. Not with the US and Putin. Very interesting gesture there, yeah? So overall, all that is something that the US do follow very closely and possibly they do feel a bit unease. What can they do? If we go back, the difference in order to influence the dollar-denominated oil and to be able to be a price setter is about three million barrels. Not long, not much. So for the US, they need to do something about it. And most probably, they need to get on their side someone that at the moment it's not. And if we see from a diagram there, they have a best bet. And let's see the countries. We have Guinea, Gabon, Qatar, Algeria, Angola, Ecuador, not really too much of a too many uh, barrels of oil in their disposal. If we go high up, it's Iran. Do you think that Iran and the US can be friendly? I doubt it. We have Saudi Arabia, we just talked about that, and now we go to the champion, Venezuela. Venezuela, most probably, is at the moment the best bet of the US 
that they can maintain their power in the petrodollar system and in the dollar. And they know that all these years. It's the only country with 300 billion barrels of proven reserves. There could be more. And it's the only country that even though at the moment, at the moment, their drilling equipment is a bit obsolete, it has the capacity of drilling 4 million barrels per day. That's 4% of the global production. And actually, you remember the number I told you earlier on, it tips the balance. So there's no coincidence that John Bolton was actually quite blunt, saying that all you care about is the oil assets. And it would be great for the US to be able to have a hand on the oil capabilities of Venezuela. They said that out loud, yeah, with that proxy coup that they're going to do. And we can see that only if they have a US-friendly like uh, government in Venezuela, they will be able possibly to maintain, for a while at least, for the medium run, their dominance of the petrodollar system. But why is so important to maintain that? The US is a country that constantly weaponizes the dollar through sanctions to be able to achieve their targets. Without a strong dollar, which is tightly linked to the oil market, you cannot do that. And I think that in very short captures these, the three tails of the oil market volatility, so we'll go to the plus one. It's like, like an invitation, right? Your plus one. That's Brexit. So this is what has happened so far, and we are still in the middle of it. The problem is, do we, do we think that the Brexit could give another blow to the oil market? I will disappoint you here a bit, because my answer is no. It does, it's highly unlikely. It's not even highly unlikely. The, the, the English, the, the, the UK oil uh, sector is not that significant to actually create a, 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 an uncertainty in the global oil market. And given what's going on at the moment in, in, in Latin America and, and in the Middle East, Brexit for the oil market, I repeat, not for anything else, it's a minor uh, problem. Even if there is an economic downturn in the UK, if Brexit gets realized, the impact in the global GDP will not be that significant. I think you have also estimated, Sangeeta, that it's about 0% in the global GDP <laughs> that it will affect the Brexit. So we don't see there. However, the Brexit could create important obstacles to the UK oil and gas industry. So if I may throw a couple of ideas where we should be paying attention and uh, conclude my, my presentation. Since 2005, the UK has become a net oil importer. And forget for the minute what are the international oil prices. International oil prices and how much it costs to import it is completely different. They are linked together, but it's different. So what we see here, it's a continuous deficit in the energy uh, balance in the UK. So if Brexit, and there are some studies that they show that it's more likely that the cost of imported oil will rise, it creates problems to the balance of payments, problems that are already there and persistent. Uh, so economically wise, obviously the UK cannot transmit that effect to, 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 to the global oil market, but the, imported, the cost of imported prices could may well harm, at least at part, the economic environment. What about the industry? That gets a bit more like business related. 
every country, almost every country that produces oil, they are obliged by the International Energy uh, Agency and those that they are in the EU by the, an EU directive to hold oil reserves, oil stocks. Getting out of the European Union, the EU uh, directive will not apply anymore. And that's on the positive side because the EU demands higher level of stocks compared to the International Energy Agency. So eventually it brings lower, let's say the idle oil that you can keep. So you have in a sense more barriers to trade. However, there's a problem. The usually there is a huge trade within countries that they produce oil between those that they have for whatever reason at a period of time more reserves to actually trade part of these reserves to the companies that they have lower than the required standards. So there's a trade there and they're called, as you can see, tickets. The problem is at the moment, the UK oil and gas industry is very heavily um, influenced and involved with the EU trading ticket. So it trades actually with European Union oil and gas firms to make sure that it has the standard reserves. That will be out of the of the game. That means they need to find other, in a sense, oil partners. I'm not saying that they won't, but the search cost, it's still a cost. On top of that, within the European Union, you can keep your oil reserves as a country wherever you want. Ireland keeps 40% of these reserves in the UK. That will be repatriated back to Ireland. So you lose part of a liquidity, let's say, sense for the UK firms. Couple of other problems that we could, we could face in the UK oil and gas industry is that the, the, the North Sea oil, it's a very difficult, uh, it, it's, it's a very, uh, it requires very heavy investments. That's why it's a high cost uh, uh, oil. Uh, so getting out of the Brexit, the import of capital goods to be able actually to maintain your equipment, uh, it could lower the, the profit margins within that industry. Uh, and it's an industry that it's not performing excellently. Also, we could see uh, a, a stop in new explorations. So that's something that we need to actually consider. The other two things is, again, it has to do about bureaucracy, obviously. The, the new tariffs that most probably will be imposed, it will create delays into the borders. That, that increases the cost, and it also has an effect on staffing. At the moment in the UK, five to seven percent of the employees in the oil and gas industry are coming from the European Union. We don't know what will be the new immigration laws. We don't know when you can actually, whether these people will feel uneasy, will leave, and how easy it will be to replace them. I'm not suggesting that these are uh, set stone and this will harm the industry. All I'm saying, these are the potential threats or shall I put it as, I think, like we get used to not say threats. I think it's a very negative word. It's uh, to these new challenges yeah, that we face. Uh, so overall, things don't look good inwards within like the UK oil and gas, uh, oil and gas industry. So what are the key takeaways that I think I'll close with that is that Hopefully I convince you that there is a regime change in the post-2004 period. Volatility in the oil market seems to be the new norm. We need to live with that. It's something that, uh, it's a reality. 
Unfortunately, fundamentals cannot really tell us the story, whereas the financialization and the geopolitical concerns will stay there. It seems that the financialization of the market can explain short-run fluctuations, whereas the geopolitical concerns are more of a medium-run effect. As for Brexit, I'm sorry to say that we cannot influence them. They can influence us. Thank you very much.